Well, this morning we are beginning a brand new series, and I'm really excited about this series. It's called He Restores My Soul. And I want to welcome all of you who are here, and I'll welcome all of those who are connecting online. And I just want to say that if you're a guest this morning, we're really glad that you're here. In fact, we've been waiting for you. Right after the service, if you would just go to the guest services, we've got a gift for you. And if you're looking for a home church, we'd love to be able to pray with you about making Central Community your permanent home church. Didn't David do a great job singing? I'm so blessed. Boy, those lessons that Pastor George and I have been giving him are really paying off. Can't, don't you think? <laughs> Well, this morning, before we get into our topic, I wanted just to share with you a little bit from God's Word, because the subjects that we're about to embrace are some pretty heavy subjects. Would you agree? But I want you to know that we're all susceptible to them. You know, everything that we're doing here this morning and in the next few weeks is going to revolve around Psalm 23. How many of you have heard that psalm before? You know, everybody seems to be familiar with that psalm, and especially the very first half of the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. Will you say that with me? The Lord is my shepherd. Do you believe that? Well, we're going to find out. You know, in our world in these last, this last year, boy, we've been through some very difficult things, haven't we? And I don't know about you, but sometimes I tend to be a control freak. And when I lose control, that's when I have a problem. And you know what? One of the things that I'm so thankful about our God is, is that he doesn't condemn me. He doesn't point the finger at me. Just like the good shepherd, he just simply comes after me. I want you to know that when David pens those words, the Lord is my shepherd, the people who were reading them would have had a clear picture about what he was talking about. You know why, don't you? Because the ancestors, their ancestors were shepherds. They would have gotten a clear picture of what it means when David said, the Lord is my shepherd. In fact, David also would tell you that it was in his training to become a shepherd that he attributes his success to defeating Goliath and being successful in life. But I also want you to know this, as much as the Lord is my shepherd, do you realize that you and I are the sheep? I want you to know that's not a compliment. So stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read from the 23rd Psalm. And I'm gonna read it from the New King James Version because that's probably how a lot of us memorized it. Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray together. Father, remind me once again this morning that you are indeed the good shepherd. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. You know, I thought that I could share with you all kinds of statistics about what's taken place in the last year, but I decided I was just gonna choose one. And the one statistic that I wanted to tell you was is that for ages 18 through 35, insurance adjusters have said that claims for anxiety and the anxiety disorder have gone up 95%. Now, I don't know about you, but I have experienced times of anxiety. I think all people have at some point in time in your life. And I want you to know that doesn't make you different. In fact, the more I've studied this, the more I've found out I'm just like the rest of y'all. But there are some things that I just want to share with you this morning about Psalm 23 that are so very, very important. There's only two things that you need to remember about Psalm 23, and this is the first one. The Lord is my shepherd. You have to know that the Lord is my shepherd. You know, my prayer is over the next few weeks is that you would pray this Psalm each and every day. In fact, I hope you memorize it. The Lord is my shepherd and everything else in Psalm 23 is a direct result or a consequence of the Lord being my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, he makes me lie down. The Lord is my shepherd and it goes on. Remember, the Lord is my shepherd. And here's the second thing I want you to remember. We are the sheep. You know how you tell if someone is a good shepherd? They can make the sheep lie down. Sheep are very finicky. They won't lie down unless they are relaxed. And in other words, there are four things that keep a sheep from lying down. Fear, hunger, insects, and friction among the flock. If those things are going on, a sheep will not lie down. But the good shepherd knows how to put his sheep at ease. The good shepherd knows how to make his sheep lie down. And so here's the thing that I want you to remember. This is the message of Psalm 23. Stay close to the shepherd. That's the message of Psalm 23, and that's the message that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. It's about staying close to the shepherd. You see, the problem is, is we tend to wander, and that's what sheep do. They wander, but the good shepherd leaves the 99, the Bible says, and he goes after the one. Aren't you glad that we have a good shepherd, that when we wander, he comes after us. So the question is, is that how do we stay in the presence of the good shepherd? And it's real easy. It's just simply through prayer. You see, the purpose of prayer is presence. When you pray, you bring on the presence of God. When you pray, 
you get the mind of Christ, you get the power, the strength of Christ, and you get the peace of Christ. You see, you can't pray and be in fear at the same time. My grandson, just the other day, we were talking on the phone and he said to me, he said, I had a nightmare. And I told him, I said, well, you know what? Every time I have a nightmare, you know what I do? Whenever I wake up, I just begin to pray. And then I told him, you know why? Because you can't pray and be afraid at the same time. You see, when we pray, the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and changes them from what we want to his presence because we know that when we have the presence of God, we have everything we need. Amen? And so that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to begin with the fact that sometimes as sheep, we sometimes wander out of his presence. And one of the results is anxiety. And so I'm going to invite my guests. I have two special guests First one is Gina Went Blazing, and the second one is Mr. Mark Potter. Would you please welcome them to the stage for me? Welcome. Thank you for coming, Sir Mark. Thank you. Mark, thank you, my friend. All right. All right. Well, first of all, I want to thank the two of you for coming because um, I don't have to speak the whole time. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to do very little speaking, but there's one, two housekeeping rules that I just want to take care of first. And the first one is this, is that if you are experiencing some anxiety, I want you to know that immediately following the service in the starting point, we have some pastors that will be there um, just to pray with you, to help you to work through that anxiety. And the second thing is, is that everything that we're going to talk about here today, you don't have to worry about getting it all down because there are, they both have a booth out there and you can pick up the handouts about everything. So make sure you do that. I've already gotten mine and I'm planning on putting them to use. And so I thought maybe we would start out with, first of all, with you guys introducing your spouses, if you would. Gina, you want to start with you, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, my spouse is William Bill, is what he prefers, William Blazing, right there. Um, he and I are elementary, junior high, and high school sweethearts. So we've been married for, will be 25 years this year, but best friends for 48, closer to 50. <laughs> All right, very good. And Mark? My wife sitting right there in the front row as well. And, um, you know, I always, uh, so since I got out of coaching, I began to speak uh, publicly. And so I always introduce my wife like this. She is my first team MVP all-world wife. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? 36 years of marriage, uh, we've known each other for 46. We, I'm trying to one-up you, Gina. Yeah, exactly, that's so, okay. So anyway, there you go. It's all good, all right. right? Very good. Um, Mark, you little, look a little anxious. Are you, are you nervous? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that he's asking me that question, isn't it? <laughs> all right. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to give the definition of what anxiety is, okay? And it just, anxiety is intense, excessive, and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations. Fast heart rate, rapid breathing, sweating, and feeling tired may occur, all right? So I remember, you know, when I was younger, um, if I ever had any kind of anxious feelings, I just kind of pushed through those things. And then I got a little older, and that pushing through didn't always work. And so 
Um, Gina, maybe you could tell us a little bit about anxiety and what, what people experience and yeah. that type of thing. Well, let me, um, and I'll try to make this as concise as possible, but a lot of times we use that word stress. You know, we're stressed out. Um, and I think about it, I think we all need to remember that stress is a prerequisite of life. I mean, we're going to have stressors um, from a lot of different perspectives, and it's not a bad thing. Uh, there's a thing that we say in the clinical world, there's U stress, E-U. Stress can be good. Um, we were talking earlier, it says if you're being chased by a bear, you want to have some stress there because what those uh, stress hormones do is they make you faster and stronger. You want to outrun the bear, right? Um, but then it can also, you stress can go into de-stressed. And so that's kind of that line that, um, that takes us into more of a clinical realm. Um, we should all learn to be best stressed, learn to recognize those signs. You hit it right on the head with all of the different symptoms. One of the ways that I've explained it before, and I don't have a slide for this, but it's a spectrum. You know, I think sometimes there's an event that happens, so we are aware, we become aware. Then we become maybe curious, and then concerned, and then we might have worry. And all of those things, maybe even apprehension, doubt, all of those things are thoughts. And then that worry might go into stress. And when we're stressed, we know that it's a body sensation. And when that keeps going and you have worry and stress, that's what anxiety is. You will um, read in the literature that we always say anxiety occurs um, cognitively, which is in the mind, emotionally and physically. And so when you have all of those things, you have anxiety. Can it be dealt with? Absolutely. Um, there are things that we, we can do to recognize it. Um, in the calm times, prepare. Um, but there's a whole list of things that we can do. I always say I have about a thousand things we can do, but um, deep breathing is my favorite. Yeah. So when we talk about anxiety, um, it becomes an anxiety disorder mm -hmm. when it begins to interfere with our daily living, Yep. correct? Yes, when it goes into anxiety, which is where you have all three of those things, you uh, find it hard to function during the day. Um, generalized anxiety, there's about, when you, when you cross over into the clinical realm and it becomes an issue because you're distressed and you're unable to function, there are about nine don't quote me for the folks out there that are in the medical field, because I haven't counted lately, but in the anxiety realm of our diagnostic manual, there's about nine things under anxiety. But those aren't the only things that cause anxiety. Um, you have PTSD, you have OCD, and those are all under different categories. But when you find it hard to function, um, and your physical symptoms are getting more and more um, uh, profound, maybe you're missing work, um, you're going to your physician and your file becomes thicker and thicker. Um, those are all the things that would designate you might need a little more help um, than, than what you are getting now. Okay, and I think that the key is what you said there is that there is help. There right? is help, absolutely. So in this last year, you know, we've had the pandemic. Right. Um, we've had an election year. Right. Um, social media, I mean, all these kinds of things. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, and Mark, jump in on this, about just social media, um, how that 
plays such a significant role in bringing about anxiousness? Do you want to take that one? Yes, I can take that one. I, uh, yesterday I was, um, I got home fairly late last night and I received a text from my old athletic director, Vic Trilly. And um, the, the text was, he said, make sure you watch the Bubba Watson interviews. I don't know if any of you have seen the Bubba Watson interview. The Masters is going on right now. And Bubba Watson is a player, a golfer in the, in the, in the Masters. And Bubba Watson said social media created all of the anxiety that he had. He said the fame, first of all, created it. But then the social media is what continued it because he paid attention to what other people said about him in a negative way all the time. And I thought, man, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing coming from somebody maybe at that level. And you know, you know, what we see and we hear all of the time is, uh, you know, we speak to many young groups, uh, colleges, universities, um, and we hear all of the time, you know, the anxiety level of those young people because of social media. And, you know, I don't want to give all of social media a bad light. We know that social media can sometimes be a good thing. But um, I remember when it started, you know, to, to happen, you know, whatever, whatever it was, 17, 18 years ago, it really started to be a thing. And uh, I remember I paid attention to it as a head basketball coach for a short period of time. Then I said, okay, uh, enough of that. It's time to get rid of that because it was giving me incredible anxiety. And, and uh, you know, so I think it's important for us all to understand the significance of um, what do we need to pay attention to? And, um, you know, when something's bothering you, make a change. And I think it's really difficult uh, sometimes to do that uh, in the midst of the society that we live in today. It's interesting how when we talk about this, these anxious thoughts and things like that, um, one of the questions that I have is this. So what do you say to people? Well, let me ask this first. Is this a lifetime deal? I mean, if I have anxious thoughts about something, am I going to be dealing with this for the rest of my life? That is a great question. Um, I don't think you have to, but there are some folks that have shared with me that they have for a great majority of their life had the issue, and I think you can learn to manage it. You can learn to, um, uh, I say, retrain your brain. Um, it can get so much better, and that's what I see um, it, with all the folks that come to me with anxiety, which, by the way, is the number one reason people seek therapy and, and help is anxiety. Um, but it, you can learn to live with it better and better and better. And there's research even on resilience. I'll throw in another topic here. Um, in the last 10 years, that's kind of one of the words we keep hearing more about is resilience. And great research on how to become more and more resilient. And one of the 10 things that have been researched and proven is facing your fears and learning how to do that. And so I, I had anxiety as a kiddo. No one knew it. I hid it really well. Um, but when I became an adult, um, it started manifesting in ways that I knew I had to pay attention to it. And so, you know, I think about that. And I, stress is a prereq of life. You're going to have stressors here and there. And if you just learn to recognize it, recognize those things that cause it, learn to eliminate, mitigate, orchestrate your stress, um, it can become easier and easier and you can do it better and better. So one of the things I want to talk about also in just a little bit is about how we're transferring as adults, we're transferring this to our kids. Absolutely. 
And, but what I want to do, first of all, is I want to come back to a question. Uh-oh. And the question is, is that what, what you hear people say, and you say it a lot, is that when somebody has anxiety, they'll hear something like this, you just don't have enough faith. So they must have asked that because you finished yeah, the question for exactly. me. But I mean, that's a serious deal. People, I mean, as a Christian, and someone comes and says, dude, you just don't have enough faith. I don't right. mean you're a dude, but you right, know what I mean. Right. Anyway, I've been so, called a dude before. No, I'm sorry, I apologize he for can that. Concur. I know I'm in trouble. People call no. me sir all the time, and I don't know if it's because I have Amazon stature or what it is. <laughs> My husband, he never believes me, and then one day standing in line at, at probably one of the grocery stores, and she was like, yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. And so they do. Does that bring you anxiety? It, I'm, yeah, just I'm just, just kidding. Getting I'm ready just to kidding. Say, no just anger, kidding. and that's one you probably ought to have a, a session on anger. Um, now I forgot the question. What was your question to me? <laughs> I don't know either. Were I you paying attention? No. no, it was, it was, you know, the whole thing about you just need to have more faith. Oh, yes. You just need to have more faith. Um, absolutely. I've, I've known a lot of faith-based folks that say that and still believe that. And I think, um, I think that's great if that works for them. Um, I've had a lot of patients come in and clients come in and they will um, indicate that that's what their issue is, is they don't have enough faith. And I always go back to the story of Job, that righteous man um, whom the devil had his way with and, and God allowed that and said, you can do whatever you want, you just can't kill him. And his friends said some similar things and that wasn't the case. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at biblically, and you're the expert in this area, but um, for years I've heard there are at least 365 scriptures um, that say, do not fear, do not be anxious, be courageous. One for every day, at least, and a few more. And you think, God knew this was something that was going to plague us. And um, so, you know, I think there are biblical characters that Joshua, you know, be courageous, that says, hey, there's something coming up here where you might tend to be a little nervous, right? You might be stressed out. Um, I'll say one last thing and then I'll turn it over. I, you know, I think about with Christ on the cross and he asks his father if there's any other way, take this cup, there wasn't. Hematrodosis, you know, we hear that he sweat blood. I don't mean to get too technical here, but I think there's a medical term, it's a very rare, rare occurrence, but there's a medical term called hematrodosis and that is incredibly high stress where the stress hormones break down the capillaries so the blood starts leaking in. You look at that and you go, wow, he was stressed. Did he not have enough faith? That's not the case. Yeah. But he, was, he went through with it. And that's where I say face your fears. You have stress, um, but just keep going. Trust God in that and figure out what you need to do to be able to manage it. Right. So, sorry, long answer. No, so Mark, you went through a lot of this, this whole thing when you were coaching and the anxiety and I'm sure, what, what, what were your thoughts when people said, dude, you just need to have more faith. What, were, what did you go through in that? Well, I mean, I, I, I kept, kept telling myself I needed to have more faith and, uh, you know, I prayed more and, and uh, you know, when I was, you know, we'll talk about depression next week, but when I was starting to spiral out of control because of the anxiety, um, you know, I, I prayed more, and, and which is always a great thing, and having more faith, and, and, and like you said, if it works for people. But I'll never forget this. When I was at home, and for you people that don't know my background, I, I was a head basketball coach for 30 years, and I 
I had to miss eight games in 28 practices uh, during one of my seasons because of, you know, anxiety, severe depression. And uh, I'll never forget, I, I received a phone call from one of my players' father, who was a pastor. And he said, Coach, he said, you need to know something. It's not your lack of faith. And uh, that makes me emotional because, you know, for so the longest time I felt like it was. And um, you know, so that gave me a great relief, you know, and, and he shared a story with me about a pastor that had really struggled a lot with that. And as you said, we all struggle, you know, with anxiety. But, you know, this is um, an issue uh, in, in, in all of our worlds, right? No matter what job we have or no matter what we do every day, we all experience some type of some level of anxiety, but you know, I, I was a head coach for over 800 games, and up until about the last five or six years, until I really learned some strategies to deal with my anxiety, I hated game days with a passion. I loved it when the ball was tipped up, but everything that led up to the game, I hated it with a passion because I was trying to you know, I, was, I had to worry about all the little things that I thought my team may not be ready to, you know, accomplish that particular night. So I really struggled with anxiety, and, and, and I was extremely good at faking people out. Uh, anybody be able to relate to that one? I was really good at faking people out. So in dealing with this, let's talk a little bit about, so what do you do? I mean, we talked about that, hopefully, that we want to confront these fears. We want to be able to work through them. So... What do we, how do we work through? Because the mind is a very powerful thing. And maybe if you can explain a little bit to us about how it works and what's something that we've talked about that we do to help us to manage our anxiety. Yeah, gosh, that's a big question. I love it. I, I always say the brain reigns um, uh, because actually the logical part of our brain and the emotional part, the, the heart part resides in the brain. And... Uh, so you said, you know, how does the brain work? Um, when we are anxious, that, um, you'll hear it described a lot of different ways, but the limbic system or the amygdala, it's the, it's the part of the brain that houses all the emotional, it's the fight or flight, and we hear that a lot, but we forget about a few others, fight, flight, freeze. Has anybody ever frozen when they're intensely fearful? Or faint. Um, and so it houses all of those types of things. And what, what I try to do is to uh, help folks lead their heart, recognize those um, things that cause that emotional part of the brain to get very active, because when it's active, it's hard to be in that logical part of the brain, which is up front. For years, we thought, um, I would say, uh, to folks, you know, there's a chemical imbalance, and so if we, you know, go on medications, you know, or you have therapy and medication, that'll help. And what we know is constant anxiety, this also is in depression as well, but constant anxious thoughts, constant depression, um, create what I call a neuronal rut in the brain. And if any of you grew up in um, an agricultural, you get in that rut with a big old truck, it's hard to get out, right? There are ways you get out, but you got to do it very methodically and strategically to get out of that. We know that with those repetitive thoughts, um, constant thinking, that it starts to shrink parts of the brain that are our executive parts, those parts of the brain that help us think and concentrate. Not only that, 
that repetitious, um, anxious thinking starts to increase the parts of the brain that are the emotional parts. So we have something going on that we would rather not have. Ways to combat that. I always go back to basics. Um, and I, we look at things like good nutrition. I mean, this is proven. Good nutrition, um, exercise. Um, when we get into the mental part, I think we have to think about what we're thinking about. Take each thought captive to that which is obedient to Christ, right? We have to think about it. Um, Kyle Eidelman has written a lot of books. He's a young pastor, I think in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know if he's still there, but he talks about the aha moment. And I love that because he says that stands for awareness, honesty, and action. And we have to be aware. And then we have to be honest with ourselves and really think about what is going on. Where are those triggers? What do I need to do? And then put a plan of action in place to to implement that. So I know in my own life, I've got an event that's coming up that makes me anxious, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I'm knowing it that as I get closer to that, it's already registering in my mind. Right. I've learned though that I can combat this by controlling my heart rate. Mm -hmm. My heart rate is controlled by my breathing. Mm -hmm. So if I can get my breathing and my heart rate to kind of be in sync, then that affects my mind. It sure does. And so I'm already beginning to go that direction. So share with us a little bit about what we can do to, just by breathing, how, how we can begin to head that direction. See, you're kind of cheating because you know it's one of my favorites too. That's probably why you asked. Thank you. Um, I always, I, I've said for years, if, if I were dying and God told me I could tell the world two things, because he would limit it. I'm very, I'm long-winded. I would tell the gospel story and then I would teach everybody how to deep breathe. Um, and teach people how to teach their kiddos to deep breathe as well. Um, you know, it does so many great things first and foremost. Um, when we deep breathe, it does something physiological. It slows the mind down. It redistributes blood gases. I mean, it does so many great things for the body. Um, and the most important thing is it slows the mind down, and it'll slow the heart down. And what does that do? That helps us then to be able to focus um, and to concentrate. And there are several different ways. We have a handout on this, by the way, front and back handout. Um, but there are several ways to do it. I don't know if you want me to go into any of yeah, those sure, ways. Please. Okay. Um, one is the box breathing or the square breathing. And I think you and I talked a little bit about this. Um, and what that is, is if you can imagine a square. Um, when you inhale... Um, and the, the one you'll see on my handout is a little different because I recreated the box. But you can, you can start, I usually start mentally in the lower bottom corner. You can start in any corner, really. But when you inhale, imagine that you're going to inhale for two or three or four seconds, and you go up that right, or that left side of the box. So we can all do it now if you'd like. Um, inhale, I say through the nose. You can do through the nose, out the mouth, or in the nose, out the nose. I don't care. I just want you to get the air in. Um, but when you go up that left side, you inhale. Two, three, four. And then as you go across the top, just hold it a little bit. And then exhale as you go down the right side. And then rest or hold it. And then you just keep repeating that. And it's, sometimes it's easy for people if they have a visual. Um, there's one that I like a lot. And by the way, I'm a type AAA personality. Um, some people are type A, I'm type AAA. So I really, this, this, is, this is the best one out there, um, deep breathing. But 
I read um, a description once on imagining that your lungs are a balloon. And so when you're inhaling through the nose, imagine that balloon getting bigger and bigger. And then you hold it. And then when you exhale, that balloon deflates. That's what I needed to read because my body is very tense all the time. And when I read that, I thought, ah, and then my body deflates. And then you hold it, and then you just repeat that. And there's several others that I put on the handout. But it, that, that's kind of the process. Um, and it works. And it, oh boy, does it work. It it's hard to do. I think people, you know, people will say, Gina, I keep forgetting. You know, they'll come back, because as a cognitive behavioral therapist, I give homework. They'll come back, and they'll say, ah, oh, I keep forgetting. Um, I had one guy, an engineer, I mean, man, he was one of my first clients in private practice, and he said, you know, I, I set my alarm on my phone. He said, the funny thing was, though, the first couple of days, I thought, what in the world? Why is this alarm going off on my phone? He would switch over. He said, then the third day, he remembered, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be deep breathing. So <laughs> you set the alarm on the phone, you put Post-it notes around, that's how we build a habit. Um, I, I will tease and say you never run out of it, so you always have it with you. You know, you only run out once. Um, you always have it with you. Um, that's a whole other topic, is it not? Um, you, you, you always have it with you. You can do it anywhere, and no one needs to know you're doing it. So you just always have it there. I saw on LinkedIn the other day a, a little boy his brother was just furious mad, and he was teaching him, just breathe. Yeah. And he was breathing with him, and the little boy calmed down. So yeah, it's it beautiful. works, it does. You have to practice it when you don't need it. Yep, right. For it to work, because I will have folks come back. I don't know if you guys have been like this, but the, the, you know, I had a wife come back once. This, is, this was hilarious, really. I mean, it wasn't funny at the time, but afterwards we did laugh. But she said, um, I said, hey, have you been practicing your deep breathing? She goes, oh, yeah. Right. She said, you know what my husband said to me? And she said, I tried to practice my deep breathing and I just couldn't do it. I was just so furious. And so I said, well, you need to practice it when you don't need it. Every day, get into that habit so that it works when you do, because yeah. it will work. You just I, 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 I yeah, one thing ahead. to add to that. You know, in, in, in the athletic world, we always talked about, and she's saying it over and over, but being intentional about that. And, and so what we always tried to train our athletes to do uh, was to number one, be intentional, but what are we being intentional about? So we talk about the breathing. If you guys watch the NCAA tournament, you watch the masters, you, wa you just watch every athlete. They're trained extremely well, NBA players, and you'll see them. A deep breath that they take right before they shoot a free throw or right before they get ready to pull it back to swing. And so the thing that we follow it up in the athletic world with is what Dr. S uh, world-renowned sports psychologist calls, uh, uh, Dr. Spencer Wood calls uh, a go-to sentence. And what is a go-to sentence? It's anything that you have that you can go to that will get you in a positive thought process. So if you're thinking about something positive, you will no longer be thinking about something negative. And so along with the breathing, we try to back that up with what we call a go-to sentence. It may be a verse in the Bible. It could be two words, uh, you know, whatever that may be, whatever you feel comfortable with. But it has to be practiced, yeah. and it has to be practiced when you're not in the moment. So that's, uh, to me, the, one of the most important things. Yeah. Let's talk about medication. Um, that seems to be a real hot topic, you know. If I... Get, do I get on medication? How do I know when I get on medication? Mark, maybe you can share a little bit about your thoughts on medication and 
you know, what, what you do and, and then Jeannie, you can jump in after that. Well, I mean, I'm a firm believer in medication, you know, medication saved my life. Um, it's, um, you know, my, when my wife forced me to go to the doctor and, you know, she admitted that I had a problem. I kind of admitted it too, um, but she helped me admit it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and um, once that took place, though, and, 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 and all jokes aside, um, you know, again, I go back to what Bubba Watson said yesterday. He said, you know, when, when, when I finally admitted as a man that I had an issue, then I knew I could start to go someplace. I could start to go get help. I could start, I needed to tell my wife. Like, so I had to go tell my wife. And once that happened, the process started and then there was hope. But, um, and that's what we're really here to do is, is to give everybody hope today. Um, but medication for me has saved my life. I'm still on medication today. Um, I take um, antidepressants along with anxiety medication. And it has changed my life. Uh, now, as a therapist, she would say not everybody needs to take medication, and I would say the same exact thing. Not everybody has to, to be in the same position that I am, but um, you know, if you're AAA, I'm not really sure what I am, to be real honest with you. Scary. Yeah, it is scary. <laughs> you want me to tell you? No, not, you don't need to tell everybody. You know, no, I'm just kidding. So anyway, medication for, for me and, and you know, my family, it's just been, it's been a savior, to be real honest with you. But how, how, so how do you know when you should take medication and when you shouldn't? I mean, that's your job. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you go ahead. Um, oh yeah, I get a lot of folks uh, that are, maybe some of them are already on medication. Um, some come in, I've had recently a couple of male um, clients come in and that was the last thing they said, don't even tell me that I need to be on medication because I'm not going. So I get the spectrum. Um, the question, how do we know when medication is needed? If somebody comes in and they're not on medication and they want to try psychotherapy and want to try some things like that, we're going to go a period of time. Um, I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to give them coping, or coping skills. If we get to a point, and there's a lot of different scenarios. You know, I have some that I think, oh my gosh, the anxiety is so bad that, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer. I will then make that suggestion. You know, can we get you an appointment with your primary care? Um, a lot of times they'll give me permission to talk with a primary care. And, and I explain it to them that, you know, this is going to help the mind do what it needs to do to lift that fog, to slow down the anxiety, so that you can then concentrate and see things clearly. Some people will say things like, well, I don't want to go on it because I'll have to be on it for the rest of my life. That's not true. I mean, some people are on it for a long time. Granted, everybody is different. But it can do wonderful things if, if indeed, you know, if they come in and don't want to be on it and want to just do uh, therapy, if that doesn't work to their satisfaction, then we talk about what some options are. My suggestion would be to, to you know, stay open-minded about what your therapist and doctor tell you to do, to do. You know, my mother of 80, she's 86 years old now, and she... Uh, as I was going through the depression and anxiety back, you know, 16 years ago, she'd say, well, how long do you need to take that medication? Because I think the older generation, you know, that's a hard thing for them to swallow because, you know, what does that show? At least society tells us it shows a sign of weakness. And I'm here to tell you it's, it's a sign of great strength if indeed that's what you need to do to help yourself. And I think it's always important to remember 
um, uh, you know, there's strength in getting help. And there's strength in admitting the fact that, you know what, we all are broken people. And uh, we all sometimes need help. So I have two questions left, and then we're going to wrap this up. So how do we help someone in our family who's dealing with anxiety, and I may not be dealing with it? How do you help that person in your family who's dealing with anxiety, and if I'm not dealing with it, how do you do that? I would, um, first of all, listen. Um, Sometimes just, and and one of my colleagues and I meet every month and, and, you know, we edify one another and whatnot, but we both have come to that conclusion that if a person can just have a place to talk about what they're going through, um, that can be very helpful. Um, I would encourage a person not to try to fix it. I had that tendency when I first started as a therapist because I'm a fixer and I wanted to try to fix it. Um, You can ask that person, um, the family member, you know, how would you like me to help you? I just want to walk with you. I want to journey with you on this. Um, Do you want me to give you suggestions or you just want me to listen and just be with you and just, you know, try to help you out in that perspective? You can suggest therapy, but you know your family member and some may not want that or need that. So you don't want to say, it's all in your head. No. Right? Oh, no. You don't want that's, to say, That's what not to head. say, right? Don't, don't, tell them to, don't tell them to pull up their bootstraps yeah. and let's go. Yeah. No, right? But listen, I think I used to say that to my wife. Don't tell her. That. I mean, she well, knows that, but I mean, it was, I'm when, sure when you, you haven't. I am sure you did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but when, when you haven't experienced that, you just don't have a clue. And, it's yeah. like, and I think, okay, so one last question, and that is this, is that what about our kids? So, you know, here we are, we're, we're going through these anxieties, and it's almost like we're teaching our kids to be anxious, and what are some things that we can be doing to help our kids or our grandkids, that type of thing? So, this last week, I was speaking at Cloud County Community College, and that was one thing that I addressed with them. You know, my, uh, our children are grown, but we have three grandchildren, and our oldest is six. And at what point, as a grandfather, will I share with my granddaughter that I've had my own struggles? And see, I know there are many people sitting in the audience saying, well, that's not really probably what we should do. And I am here to tell you that unless we become more vulnerable as adults, as grandparents, as fathers, as mothers, as grand, no matter what, Anytime we have children that are underneath us, that are looking up to us, if we can't be vulnerable with them, how do we ever expect them to be vulnerable enough to reach out for help? That is the part to me that we have to change in our society if we are going to uh, lower the suicide rates, lower the depression rates. Children younger and younger and younger are developing anxiety. we just, I think, have to be a lot more open-minded about saying, you know what, and it's not going to be very much longer. I'm going to be sharing with my granddaughter. I, you can rest assured of that uh, because I want her to know, you know what, I'm, I'm broken too, and it's okay. And uh, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to recognize that uh, no matter who we are, um, anxiety and depression, neither one of them discriminate. You know, anxiety, I don't think we've mentioned this, but over 40 million people in the United States have anxiety. One out of every five people are going to struggle with anxiety. So uh, 
Let's, let's just be vulnerable. How about that? Very good. So. Very good. So if someone is here today and they're experiencing thoughts of anxiousness, what would your suggestion be to them? To get help. I mean, they can get some handouts out on our table. Um, There are books, examples of books out there that they can read if they want to do self-help. But then there's ways that they can seek, and we we have a slide on that, but there are ways that they can seek uh, counseling if, if they would like as well. Um, I will always encourage folks, if you want to get outside help, that you, if you have insurance, um, you can contact your insurance company. You can see who's what we call in-network. They've, they've credentialed with your insurance company, and it's going to cost you less to go to them than an uh, out-of-network therapist. You can ask a trusted friend for a referral. You can go to your physician. All of the physi- most of the physicians, I would say, have a referral list. You can do online counseling if you don't want to go to an office um, and keep it more private. And there are several online um, resources that you can better help, teledoc. There's probably going to be more and more and more. There are therapists who do online counseling. So from the safety of your home, uh, you can do that. So those are some. And Wichita is very, um, we have a lot of therapists in Wichita. So there's, there should not be a problem finding a therapist. Awesome.